0: Hey everyone, thank you for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is week one of Jules Verne, and we've got Castle of the Carpathians. Uh, you know, it may have inspired the topography for Bram Stoker's Dracula. I mean, it very likely could have, and you know, not a lot of stuff happened in Transylvania and literature, and, you know, I'm pretty sure Bram Stoker probably read this. But hey, uh, how about the fact that we're doing Jules Verne all month long? And after that, we're going to be doing the uh, Underground City Mysterious Island, uh, that one about the moon and the one about the Antarctic of Jules Verne this month. We're probably going to have some experts on the show talking about Jules Verne and talking about Jules Verne's influence on literature and fiction and science fiction for sure. And yeah, yeah, it's going to be a cool, fun time. And you know what you should do? If you like the show, you should let us know by going to Facebook.com, look for Black Clock Audio Tales or People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. if. That's the one you like better. And let us know that you like this show. Review us, rate us, whatever. Let people know that we're out there. Share us. Tell people about it. Be like, you know what, the announcer guy kind of sucks, but if you skip ahead, probably about, like, I don't know, I'm guessing about three minutes, you'll get to the story, and you can start listening to it. And sometimes he pipes in for commercials, but hey, you know what? It's free. So, you know what? Let people know it's free, and that I'm not going to put up a paywall. And that... People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales, is a weekly podcast, but we put out enough every week that you've got stuff all week long. I ran out of stuff all week long, and then I remembered, oh shoot, I've got that post stuff that I edited last week that's coming up today, and then I was like, awesome. And then I remembered I also had some unspooled to listen to, but I'll talk about that. No, no, I won't. I don't talk about other podcasts on my podcast. Anyway, so thank you for listening to this podcast. And also, I do talk about other podcasts. You can check out um, Dave's Corner of the Universe bits and segments that we do here. Hopefully sooner than later, we'll have Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. And we've got Black Clock Audio Tales, which you're listening to right now. We do special segments from time to time with folks like Ken Hyde or Andrew Migliori or Andrew Grace. or um, Let's see, sometimes we get David Heath to talk about stuff, and sometimes we're lucky enough to get uh scott glancy we've had rossi lockhart from word horde and we've even had rodney anonymous from the dead milkman on the show so check us out pgttcm.com for all the back episodes here we go
1: recording by joe denoya somerset new jersey the castle of the carpathians by jules verne chapter one this story is not fantastic it is merely romantic are we to conclude that it is not true its unreality being granted? That would be a mistake. We live in times where everything can happen. We might almost say everything has happened. If our story does not seem to be true today, it may seem so tomorrow, thanks to the resources of science, which are the wealth of the future. No one would think of classing it as legendary. Besides, one does not invent legends at the close of this practical and positive 19th century. Neither in Brittany, the country of the ferocious Corrigans, nor in Scotland, the land of the brownies and gnomes, nor in norway the land of aises elves sylphs and valkyries nor even in transylvania where the carpathian scenery lends itself so naturally to every psychagogic evocation but at the same time it is as well to note that transylvania is still much attached to the superstitions of early ages these provinces of furthest europe M. de Herando has described them M. lsa recluse has visited them neither have said anything of the strange story on which this romance is founded did they know of it perhaps but they did not wish to add to the belief in it. We are sorry for it, for if they had related it, one would have done so with the precision of the annalist, and the other with that instinctive poetry with which all his tales of travels are imbued. But as neither of them told it, I will try to do so for them. On the 29th of May, a shepherd was watching his flock on the edge of the green plateau at the foot of Retizat, which dominates a fertile valley, thickly wooded with straight-stemmed trees, and enriched with cultivation. This elevated plateau, open, unsheltered, the northwest winds sweep during the winter as closely as the barber's razor. It is said in the country that they shave it, and they do so, almost. This shepherd had nothing arcadian in his costume, nor bucolic in his attitude. He was neither Daphnes, nor Amentis, nor Titoris, nor Lycidas, nor Malibos. The Linion did not murmur at his feet, which were encased in thick wooden shoes. It was only the Wallachian sill whose clear, pastoral waters were worthy of flowing through the meanderings of the Romance of Astria. Frick, Frick of the village of Wurst, such was the name of this rustic shepherd, was as roughly clothed as his sheep, but quite well enough for the whole, at the entrance of the village, where sheep and pigs lived in a state of revolting filth. The Imanum pecus fed them under the care of said Frick Imani or Ips. Stretched on a hillcock carpeted with grass, he slept with one eye open, his big pipe in his mouth and now and then he gave a shrill whistle to his dogs when some sheep strayed away from the pasturage, or else he gave a more powerful blast which awoke the multiple echoes of the mountain. It was four o'clock in the afternoon. The sun was sinking toward the horizon. A few summits whose bases were bathed in floating mists were standing out clear in the east. Toward the southwest, two breaks in the chain allowed a slanting column of rays to enter the ring like a luminous jet passing through a half-open door. This orographic system belongs to the wildest part of Transylvania, known as the county of Klausenberg, or Kolosvar. A curious fragment of the Austrian Empire is this Transylvania, Erdalé in Magyar, which means the country of the forests. It is bounded by Hungary on the north, Molokia on the south, Moldavia on the west, extending over 60,000 square kilometers, about six millions of hectares, nearly the ninth of France. It is a kind of Switzerland, but half as large again, and no more populous. With its table lands under cultivation, its luxuriant pasturages, its capriciously carved valleys, its frowning summits, Transylvania, streaked by the plutonic ramifications of the Carpathians, is furrowed by numerous watercourses flowing to swell the Tice and the superb Danube, the iron gates of which, a few miles to the south, close the defile the Balkan chain on the frontier of Hungary and the Ottoman Empire. Such is the ancient country of Dacia, conquered by Trajan in the first century of the Christian era. The independence it enjoyed under Jean Zapoli and his successors up to 1699 ended with Leopold I, who annexed it to Austria. But such was his political constitution that it remained the common abode of the races, which elbow each other but never mingle. Wallachians or Romans, Hungarians, Saganes, settlers of Moldavia origin, and also Saxons, whose time and circumstances will end by Magyarizing to the advantage of Transylvanian unity. To which of these types did the shepherd Frick belong? Was he a degenerate descendant of the ancient Dacians? He would not have found it easy to say so, to judge by his tumbled hair, his begrimed face, his bristly beard, his thick eyebrows, like two red-haired bushes, his bluish eyes, bluish or greenish, the humid corners of which were marked with the wrinkles of old age. He must have been sixty-five. You would never have guessed him less. But he was big, hardy, upright under his yellowish cloak, which was not as shaggy as his chest, and the painter would not have lost the chance of sketching him when he was wearing his grass hat, a true wisp of straw, and resting on his crook as motionless as a rock. Just as the rays penetrated through the break in the west, Frick turned over. His half-closed hands he made into a telescope, as he had already made it into a speaking trumpet, to make his voice heard at a distance, and he looked through it attentively. In the clear of the horizon, a good mile away, lay a group of buildings, with their outlines much softened by the distance. This old castle occupied on an isolated shoulder of the Vulcan range, the upper part of a tableland called the Orgel Plateau. In the bright light, the castle stood out with the clearness displayed in stereoscopic views. But, nevertheless, the shepherd's eye must have been endowed with great power of vision to be able to make out any detail in that distant mass. Suddenly he exclaimed, as he shook his head, Old castle, old castle, you may well stand firm on your foundation. Three years more and you will have ceased to exist. For your beech tree has only three branches left this beech tree planted at the extremity of one of the bastions of the enclosure stood out black against the sky and would have been almost invisible at that distance to anyone else than frick the explanation of the shepherd's words which were caused by a legend relative to the castle we will give in due time yes he repeated three branches there were four yesterday but the fourth has fallen during the night i can only count three at the fork no more than three old castle no more than three if we attack a shepherd on his ideal side, the imagination readily takes him for a dreamy, contemplative being. He converses with the planets, he confers with the stars, he reads in the skies. In reality, he is generally a stupid, ignorant brute. But public credulity easily credits him with supernatural gifts. He practices sorcery. According to his humor, he can call up good fortune or bad and scatter it among men and beasts. Or, what comes to the same thing, he sells sympathetic powders and you can buy from him filtres and formulas. Can he not make the furrows barren by throwing into them enchanted stones? Can he not make sheep sterile by merely casting on them the evil eye? These superstitions are of all times and all countries. Even in the most civilized lands, one will never meet a shepherd without giving him some friendly word, some significant greeting, saluting him by the name of pastor to which he clings. A touch of the hat affords an escape from malign influences, and on the roads of Transylvania it is no more omitted than elsewhere. Frick, then, was regarded as a sorcerer. A caller up of apparitions. According to him, the vampires and stridges obey him. If you were to believe him, these were be met with at the setting of the moon, as on dark nights in other countries you see the great Bissex astride on the arms of the mill, talking with the wolves or dreaming in the starlight. Frick profited by all this. He sold charms and counter charms, but he had noted, he was as credulous as his believers. If he did not believe in his own witchcraft, he believed in the legends of his country. There is nothing surprising, therefore, in his prophecy regarding the approaching disappearance of the old castle. Now that the beach was reduced to three branches, Oren is at once setting out to bear the news to worst. After mustering his flock by bellowing loudly through a long trumpet of white wood, he took the road to the village. His dogs followed him, hurrying on the sheep as they did so. Two mongrel demi-griffins, snarling and ferocious, who seemed fitter to eat the sheep than to guard them. He had a hundred rams and ewes, a dozen yearlings, the rest three and four years old. The flock belonged to the judge of worst, the Bureau Colts, who paid the commune a large sum for pasturage, and who thought a good deal of his shepherd Frick, knowing him to be a skillful shearer and well acquainted with the treatment of such maladies as thrush, giddiness, fluke, rot, foot rot, and other cattle ailments. The flock moved in a compact mass, the bellwether at the head making the bell heard above the bleeding. As he left the pasturage, Frick took a wide footpath bordered by spacious fields, in which waved magnificent ears of corn, very long in the straw and high on the stalk, and several plantations of cuckoo routes, which is the maize of the country. The road led to the edge of a forest of firs and spruces, fresh and gloomy beneath their branches. Lower down, the sill flowed along its luminous course, filtering through the pebbles in its bed and bearing the logs of wood from the sawmills upstream. Dogs and sheep stopped on the right bank of the river and began to drink greedily, pushing the reeds aside to do so. Worst was not more than three gunshots away, beyond a thick plantation of willows formed of well grown trees, and not of stunted pollards, which only grow bushy for a few feet above their roots. These willows stretched away up to Vulcan Hill, of which the village of the same name occupied a projection on the southern slope of the Plesa Range. The fields were now deserted. It is only at nightfall that the laborers return home, and Frick, as he went along, had no traditional "'Good night,' to exchange. "'When his flock had satisfied their thirst, "'he was about to enter the fold of the valley "'when a man appeared at the bend of the sill "'some fifty yards downstream. "'Hello, friend,' said he to the shepherd. "'He was one of those peddlers "'who traveled from market to market in the district. "'They are to be met with in the towns "'and all the villages, "'and making themselves understood "'that they have no difficulty, "'for they speak all languages. "'Was this one an Italian, a Saxon, or a Wallachian? "'No one could say, but he was unmistakably a Jew.' tall, thin, hook-nosed, with a pointed beard, a prominent forehead, and keen, glittering eyes. This peddler dealt in telescopes, thermometers, barometers, and small clocks. What he did not carry in the bag strongly strapped over his shoulder, he hung from his neck and his belt, so that he was quite a traveling stall. Probably this Jew had the usual respect for shepherds, and the salutary fear they inspire. He took Frick by the hand. Then in the Ruman language, which is a mixture of Latin and slave, "'he said with a foreign accent. "'Are you getting on all right, friend?' "'Yes, considering the weather,' replied Frick. "'Then you must be doing well today, for the weather is beautiful. "'And I shall not be doing well tomorrow, for it will rain.' "'It will rain,' said the peddler. "'Then it rains without clouds in your country. "'The clouds will come to night, and from yonder, the bad side of the mountain. "'How do you know that?' "'By the wool of my sheep, which is harsh and dry as tanned leather. "'Then it will be all the worse for those who are on a long journey.' And all the better for those who stay near home. Then you have a home, Shepherd? Have you any children, said Frick? No. Are you married? No. And Frick asked this because in this country it is the custom to do so of those you meet. He continued, Where do you come from, peddler? From Hermannstadt. Hermannstadt is one of the principal villages of Transylvania. On leaving it, you find the valley of the Hungarian Sill, which flows down to the town of Petrozny. And you are going? To Kolesvar. To reach Kolosvar you have to ascend the Valley of the Maros, and then by Carlsberg, along the lower slopes of the BR Mountains, you reach the capital of the country. It is a walk of twenty miles only. These vendors of thermometers, barometers, and cheap jewelry always seem to be a peculiar people, and somewhat hoffman in their bearing. It is part of their trade. They sell time and weather in all forms. The time which flies, the weather which is, and the weather which will be, just as other packmen sell baskets and drapery. They are commercial travelers from the house of Saturn and Co., on the sign of the Golden Shoe. And doubtless this was the effect the Jew produced on Frick, who gazed not without astonishment at this display of things which were new to him, the use of which he did not know. "'I say,' pedlar," said he, outstretching his arm, "'what is the use of all this trumpery which rattles at your belt like a lot of old bones?' "'These things are valuable,' said the peddler. "'They are of use to everybody.' "'To everybody,' said Frick, winking his eye. "'Even the shepherds? "'Even the shepherds. "'What is the use of this machine?' This machine, answered the Jew, putting a the thermometer into his hands, will tell you if it is hot or cold. Ah, friend, I can tell you that when I'm sweating under my tunic or shivering under my overcoat. Evidently, that was enough for a shepherd who did not trouble himself about the wherefore of science. And this big watch with the needle, continued he, pointing to an aneroid. That is not a watch, but an instrument which will tell you if it will be fine tomorrow, or if it will rain. Really? Really. Good, said Frick. I don't want that, even if it costs a crew, sir. I have only to look at the clouds trailing along the mountains or racing over the higher peaks, and I can tell you what the weather will be a day in advance. Look, do you see that mist which seems to rise from the ground? Well, I tell you it means water for tomorrow. And in fact the shepherd, who was a great observer of the weather, could do very well without a barometer. I will not ask you if you want a clock, continued the peddler. A clock? I have one which goes by itself and hangs over my head. That is the sun up there. Look, you friend, when it is over the peak of Ruddock, it is noon." When it looks at me across the gap of Egelt, it is six o'clock. My sheep know it as well as I do, and my dogs know it as well as my sheep. You can keep your clocks. Then, said the peddler, if my only customers were shepherds, I should have hard work to make a fortune. And so you want nothing? Nothing at all. Besides which, all these low-priced goods were very poor workmanship. The barometers never agreed as to its being changeable weather or fair. The clock hands made the hours too long or the minutes too short. In fact, they were pure rubbish. The shepherd suspected this, perhaps, and did not care to become a buyer. But just as he was taking up his stick again, he caught sight of a sort of tube hanging from the peddler's strap. And what do you do with that tube? That tube is not a tube. Is it a blunderbuss? No, said the Jew. It is a telescope. It was one of those common telescopes which magnify the objects five or six times, or bring them as near, which produces the same result. Frick unhooked the instrument, he looked at it, he handled it, and opened and shut it. Then he shook his head. A telescope, he asked. Yes, Shepard, and a good one. And one that will make you see a long way off. Oh, I have good eyes, my friend. When the air is clear, I can see the rocks on top of the Retsyets, and the farthest trees in the Vulcan valleys. Without winking? Without winking. It is the dew which makes me do that, and my sleeping from night to morning under the starlit sky. That is the sort of thing to keep your pupils clean. What, the dew? said the peddler. It might perhaps make the blot not the shepherds, Quite so, but if you have good eyes, mine are better when I get them at the end of that telescope. That remains to be seen. Put yours to it now. Mine? Try. Will that cost me anything? asked Frick suspiciously. Nothing at all, unless you buy the machine. Being reassured on this point, Frick took the telescope, the tubes of which were adjusted by the peddler. Shutting his left eye as directed, he applied his right eye to the eyepiece. At first, he looked towards Vulcan Hill, and then up towards Plaza. That done, he lowered the instrument and brought it to bear on the village of Verst. Ah, ah, he said, perhaps you are right. It does carry farther than my eyes. There is the main road. I recognize the people. There is Nick Beck, the forester, coming home with his haversack on his back and his gun over his shoulder. I told you so, said the peddler. Yes, yes, that really is Nick, said the shepherd. And who was the girl who was coming out of Colts's house, with the red petticoat and the black bodice, as if to get in front of him? Keep on looking, shepherd. You will soon recognize the girl as you did the young man. Ah, yes. It is Miriota, the lovely Miriota. Ah, the lovers, the lovers. This time I have got them at the end of my tube, and I shall not lose one of their little goings-on. What do you say to the telescope? Eh? It does make you see far. As Frick was looking through a telescope for the first time, it followed that Verse was one of the most backwards villages of the country of Klausenburg, and that this was so, we shall soon see. Come, shepherd, continued the peddler. Look again. Look further than Worst." The village is too near us. Look beyond. Farther beyond, I tell you. Shall I have to pay any more? No more. Good. I will look towards the Hungarian sill. Yes. There is the clock tower I live in Zell. I recognize it by the cross which has lost one arm. And beyond, in the valley, among the pines, I see the spire of Petrosny, with its weathercock of zinc with the open beak as if it were calling his chickens. And beyond, there is that tower pointing up amidst the trees. But I suppose, Peddler, it is all at the same price. All the same, cried Shepherd. Frick turned the telescope toward the plateau of Borgon. Then, with it, he followed the curtain of forests, darkening the slopes of Plisa, and the field of the objective framed the distant outline of the village. Yes, he exclaimed. The fourth branch is on the ground. I had seen it all right, and no one would get it to make a torch out of it for the night of St. John's. Nobody, not even me. It would be to risk both body and soul. But do not trouble yourself about it. There is one who knows how to gather it tonight, for his infernal fire, and that is the Chort, the Chort being the devil when he is invoked in the language of the country. Perhaps the Jew might have demanded an explanation of these incomprehensible words, as he was not a native of the village of Wurst or its environs, had not Frick exclaimed in a voice of terror mingled with surprise, What is that mist escaping from the dungeon? Is it a mist? No. One would say it was a smoke. It is not possible. For hundreds and hundreds of years no smoke had come from the chimney of the castle. If you see a smoke over there, Shepherd, there is a smoke. No, Peddler, no. It is the glass of your machine which is misty. Clean it. And when I have cleaned it? Frick shifted the telescope, and having rubbed the glasses, he replaced it at his eye. It was undoubtedly a smoke streaming from the upper part of the dungeon. It mounted high in the air and mingled with the highest vapors. Frick remained motionless and silent. All his attention was concentrated on the castle, from which the rising shadow began to touch the level of the plateau of Orgal. Suddenly he lowered the telescope. And thrusting his hand into the pouch he wore under his frock, he said, "How much do you want for your tube? A florin and a half," said the peddler. And he would have sold the telescope for a florin if Frick had shown any desire to bargain for it. But the shepherd said not a word. Evidently under the influence of an astonishment as sudden as it was inexplicable, he plunged his hand to the bottom of his wallet and drew out the money. "Are you buying the telescope for yourself?" asked the Peddler. "No, for my master. And he will pay you back. Yes, the two florins it cost me." "'What? The two Florins?' "'Eh, certainly. That and no less. "'Good evening, my friend. Good evening, "'shepherd.' And Frick, whistling "'his dogs and urging on his flock, struck "'off rapidly in the direction of reversed. "'The Jew, looking at him as he went, "'shook his head as if he had been doing a trade "'with a madman. If I had known "'that,' he murmured, I should have charged him more "'for the telescope. Then he adjusted his "'burden of his belt and shoulders and resumed his "'journey to Carlsberg, along the right bank of the "'sill. Where did he go? "'It matters little.' He passed out of the story. We shall meet with him no more. End of chapter one. According by Joe DeNoia, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter two. It matters not whether we are dealing with native rocks piled up by natural means in distant geological epochs, or with constructions due to the hand of man over which the breadth of time has passed. The effect is much the same when viewed from a few miles off. Unworked stone and worked stone may easily be confounded. From afar, the same color, the same liniments, the same deviations of line in the perspective, the same uniformity of tint under the gray patina of centuries. And so it was with this castle, otherwise known as the Castle of the Carpathians. To distinguish the indefinite outlines of this structure on the plateau of Wargal, which crowns the left of Vulcan Hill, was impossible. It did not stand out in relief from the background of mountains. What might have been taken as a dungeon was only a stony mound. What might be supposed to be a curtain with its battlements might be only a rocky crest. The mass was vague, floating, uncertain, and in the opinion of many tourists, the castle of the Carpathians existed only in the imagination of the country people. Evidently, the simplest means of assuring yourself as to its existence would have been to have bargained with a guide from Vulcan or worse, to have gone up the valley, scaled the ridge, and visited the buildings. But a guide would have been as difficult to find as the road leading to the castle. In the valley of both sills, no one would have agreed to be guide to a traveler, for no matter what remuneration, to the castle of Carpathians. What they would have seen with this ancient habitation in the field of a telescope more powerful and better focused than the trumpery thing bought by the shepherd Frick on account of his master Colts, was this. Some 800 or 900 feet in the rear of Vulcan Hill lay a gray enclosure, covered with a mass of wall plants and extending for from 400 to 500 feet along the irregularities of the plateau. At each end were two angular bastions, in the right of which grew the famous beach, close by the slender watchtower or lookout of the pointed roof. On the left, a few patches of wall, strengthened by flying buttresses, supporting the tower of the chapel, the cracked bell of which was often sounded in high winds to the great alarm of the district. In the midst, crowned by its crenellated platform, a heavy, formidable dungeon, with three rows of leaded windows, the first story of which was surrounded by a circular terrace. On the platform, a long metal spire, ornamented with feudal virulet, or weathercock, stationary with rust, which a last puff of the northwest wind had set pointing to the southeast. As to what was contained in this enclosure, if there was any habitable building within, if a drawbridge or a postern gave admittance to it, had been unknown for a number of years. In fact, although the castle of the Carpathians was in better preservation than it seemed to be, an infectious terror doubled by superstition, protected it as much as it had formerly been by its basilisks, its grasshoppers, its bombards, its culverins, its thunderers, and other engines of medieval artillery. But nevertheless, the castle of the Carpathians was well worth visiting by tourists and antiquarians. Its situation on the crest of the Orgal Plateau was exceptionally fine. From the upper platform of the keep, or dungeon, the view extended to the farthest point of the mountains. In the rear undulated the lofty chain, so capriciously spurred, which serves as the frontier of Wallachia. In front lay the sinuous defile of the Vulcan, the only practical route between the frontier provinces. Beyond the valley of the two cells lay the towns of Livenzel, Lognay, Petrosny, and Petria, grouped at the mouths of the shaft by which the rich coal basin is worked. In the distance lay an admirable series of ridges, wooden to their bases, green on their flanks, barren on their summits, commanded by the rugged peaks of Retyazet and Paring far away beyond the valley of Hatzeg and the course of the Marrows appear the distant mist-clad outlines of the Alps of central Transylvania. Hereabouts the depression of the ground formerly formed a lake into which the two sills flowed before they found a passage through the chain. Nowadays this depression is a coalfield with its advantages and inconveniences. The tall brick chimneys rise amid the poplars, pines, and beeches, and black fumes poison the air which once was saturated with the perfumes of fruit trees and flowers. But at the time of our story, although industry was holding the mining district under its iron hand, nothing had been lost of the country's wild character, which was its, by nature. The castle of the Carpathians dated from the 12th or 13th century. In those days, under the rule of the chiefs or voivodes, monasteries, churches, palaces, castles were fortified with as much care as the towns and villages. Lords and peasants had to secure themselves against aggressions of all kinds. This state of affairs explains why the old fortifications of the castle, its bastions and its keep, gave it the appearance of a feudal building. What architect would have built on this plateau, at this height, we know not, and the bold builder is unknown unless it was the Rumin Manolai, so gloriously sung of in Wallachian legend, and who built the de d'Argis, the celebrated castle of Rudolf the Black. Whatever doubts there may be as to the architect, there were none as to the family who owned the castle. The barons of courts have been lords of the country from time immemorial. They were mixed up in all the wars, which ensanguined the Transylvanian fields. They fought against the Hungarians, the Saxons, the settlers. Their name figures in the Cantuses and Doings in which is perpetuated the memory of these disastrous times. For their motto, they had the famous Wallachian proverb, Depe muerte, give unto death, and they gave. They poured out their blood for the cause of independence, the blood which came to them from their Romans, their ancestors. As we know, all their efforts of devotedness and sacrifice ended only in reducing the descendants of this valiant race to the most unworthy oppression. It no longer exists politically. Three heels have crushed it. But these Wallachians of Transylvania have not despaired of shaking off the yoke. The future belongs to them, and it is with unshakable confidence that they repeat these words, which are concentrated all their aspirations. Roman no peray. The Roman does not know how to perish. Toward the middle of the 19th century, the last representative of the Lords of Gortz was Baron Rodolphe. Born at the castle of the Carpathians, he had seen the family die away around him in the early years of his youth. When he was 22 years old, he found himself alone in the world. His people had fallen off year by year, like the branches of the old beech tree, with which popular superstition associated the very existence of the castle. Without relatives, we might even say without friends, what could Baron Rodolphe do to occupy the leisure of this monotonous solitude that death had made around him? What were his tastes, his instincts, his aptitudes? It would not have been easy to discover any, beyond an irresistible passion for music, particularly for the singing of the great artists of the period. And so, after having entrusted the castle, then much dilapidated, to the care of a few old servants, he one day disappeared. And, as was discovered later on, he had devoted his wealth, which was considerable, to visiting the chief lyrical centers of Europe, the theaters of Germany, France, and Italy where he can indulge himself in his insatiable dilettante fancies. Was he an oddity or a madman? The strangeness of his life led people to suppose so. But the remembrance of his country was deeply engraven on the heart of the young lord of Gortz. In his distant wanderings he had not forgotten his Transylvanian birthplace, and he had returned to take part in one of the sanguinary revolts of the Romanian peasantry against Hungarian oppression. The descendants of the ancient Dacians were conquered, and their territory shared among the conquerors. It was in consequence of this defeat that Baron Rudolf finally left the castle of the Carpathians, certain parts of which had already fallen into ruin. Death soon deprived the castle of his last servants, and it was totally deserted. As to the Baron de Gortz, the report went that he had patriotically associated himself with the famous Rusa Sandor, an old highwayman whom the War of Independence had made a dramatic hero. Happily for him, at the close of the struggle, Rudolf de Gortz had separated from the band of the Betyar, and he had done wisely, for the old brigand had again become a robber and ended by falling into the hands of the police, who shut him up in the prison in Samos udvar. Nevertheless, another version was generally believed in the country, to the effect that Baron Rodolf had been killed during an encounter between Rosov Sandar and the Custom House officer on the frontier. This was not so, although the Baron de Gortz had never appeared at the castle since that time, and his death was generally taken for granted. But it is wise not to accept without considerable reserve the gossip of this credulous people. A castle deserted, haunted, and mysterious. A vivid and ardent imagination had soon peopled it with phantoms, ghosts appeared in it, and spirits returned to it at all hours of the night. Such opinions are still common in certain superstitious countries of Europe, and Transylvania is one of the most superstitious. Besides, how could the village of Verst put off its belief in the supernatural? The Pope and the schoolmaster, the one charged with the education of the faithful, the other charged with the education of the children, taught their fables as openly as if they believed in them thoroughly. They affirmed, and even produced corroborative evidence, that werewolves prowled about the country. That vampires, known as Stryges, because they shrieked like Stryges, quenched their thirst on human blood. That Stafi lurked their ruins and became vindictive if something to eat and drink were not left for them every night. There were fairies, babes who should not be met with on Thursdays or Fridays, the two worst days of the week. In the depths of the forests, those enchanted forests, there wandered the Baluri, those gigantic dragons whose jaws gape up to the clouds, the Zmi with vast wings who carry away the daughters of the royal blood, and even those of meaner lineage when they are pretty. Here, it would seem, were a number of formidable monsters, and what is the good genius opposed to them in the popular imagination? Simply the Serpe de Casa, the snake of the fireside, which lives at the back of the hearth, and whose healthy influence the peasant purchases by feeding him with the best milk. If ever a castle was a fitting refuge for the creatures of the Romanian mythology, was it not the castle of the Carpathians? On this isolated plateau, inaccessible except for the left of the Vulcan hill, there could be no doubt that there lived dragons and fairies and striders, and probably a few ghosts of the family of the barons, of Gortz. And so it had an evil reputation, which deserved, as they said. No one dared to visit it. It spread around it a terrible epidemic, as an unhealthy marsh gives forth its pestilential emanations. Nothing could approach it within a quarter of a mile without risking its life in this world and its salvation in the nest. At least, so it was taught in the school of Magister Armin. But at the same time, this state of things was to end eventually, and that as soon as no stone remained of the ancient stronghold of the barons of Gortz. And here it was that legends came to live in. We were to believe the authorities of the village of Worst. The existence of the castle was bound up with that of the old beech tree which grew in the bastion to the right of the enclosure. Since the departure of Rodolph de Gortz, the people of the village, and more especially the shepherd Frick, had observed it. This beech tree had lost one of its main branches every year. There were 18 from the first fork when Baron Rodolph was seen for the last time on the platform of the keep, and now the tree had only three. Consequently, every branch that fell meant a year less of the castle's life. The fall of the last would mean the final dissolution, and then on the plateau of Orgal, the remains of the castle of the Carpathians would be sought in vain. Evidently, this was but one of the legends which sprung up so readily in Romanian imagination. In the first place, it remained to be proved that the beech tree did really lose one of its branches a year although Frick did not hesitate to assert that it did, he who never lost sight of it while his flock pastured in the meadows of the Sill. Nevertheless, from the highest to the lowest of the people of Worst, none doubted that the castle had but three years to live, for only three branches can now be counted on the tutelary tree. Thus it was that the shepherd had started on his return, to the village with the important news when there occurred the incident of the telescope. Important news. Very important news, in fact. Smoke had appeared above the dungeon, That which his eyes alone had not been able to notice, Frick had distinctly seen with the peddler's telescope. It was no vapor but real smoke which had arisen into the clouds. And yet the castle was deserted. For a long time no one had entered the gate, which was doubtless shut, nor crossed the drawbridge, which was doubtless up. If it were inhabited, it could only be by supernatural beings. But what use could spirits have for a fire in the rooms of the keep? Was it a fire in a room? Was it a kitchen fire? Really? it was inexplicable. Frick hurried his sheep along the road. At his voice the dogs urged the flock up the rising track, the dust of which had been laid by the evening moisture. A few peasants, delayed in the fields, greeted him as he passed, and he scarcely replied to them, and consequently there was such uneasiness, for if he would avoid evil influences, it is not good enough to say good evening to a shepherd, but the shepherd must say it to you. And Frick did not appear much inclined to do so, as he hurried on with his haggard eyes, his curious gait, and his excited gestures. The wolves and the bears might have walked off with half of this flock without his noticing it. The first who learned the news was Judge Colts. From afar Frick saw him and shouted, There is a fire at the castle, master. What do you say? I say what there is. Have you gone mad? How could a fire break out in such a heap of old stones? As well assert that Nagoy, the highest peak of the Carpathians, had been devoured by flames. It would have been no more absurd. "'You suppose that the castle is on fire?' asked Master Colts. "'If it is not on fire, it smokes. "'It is some vapor. "'No, it is smoke. "'Come and see.' And they went into the middle of the main road of the village near the terrace, from which the castle could be observed. When they got there, Frick held out the telescope to Master Colts. Evidently, the use of the instrument was no more known to him than it had been to the shepherd. "'What is that?' he said. "'A machine I bought for you for two floorings, Master, and it was well worth four. "'Of whom?' a peddler. And what is it to do? Put it to your eye. Look straight at the castle, and you will see. The judge leveled the telescope at the castle and looked through it for some time. Yes, there certainly was smoke rising from one of the chimneys of the dungeon. At this moment, it was being blown away by the breeze and floating up the flank of the mountain. Smoke, said Master Colts, astonished. But now he and Frick had been joined by Mariotta and the forester, Nick Deck, who had been indoors for some time. "'What is the use of this?' asked the young man, taking the telescope. "'To see with the far-off,' said the shepherd.
0: "'Are
1: you joking?' "'Joking? Hardly an hour ago I saw you coming down the road into Worst. You and—' He did not finish his sentence. Mariotta had blushed and lowered her pretty eyes. After all, there was no harm in an honest young girl going to meet her betrothed. Both of them took the famous telescope and looked through it at the castle. Meanwhile, half a dozen neighbors had arrived in the terrace— and, after many questions as to what it all meant, took a look through the telescope in turn. A smoke, a smoke at the castle, said one. Perhaps the lightning has struck the dungeon, said another. Has there been any thunder, asked Master Colts, addressing Frick. Not a sound for a week, said the shepherd. And the good folks could not have been more startled if a crater had opened up on the summit of Retyat to give passage to the subterranean vapors. End of chapter two. Chapter three. The village of Verst is of so little importance that most maps do not indicate its position. In administrative rank, it is even below its neighbor called Vulcan, from the name of that portion of the place a range on which both are picturesquely situated. At the present time, when the opening of the coalfields had increased the importance of the towns of Petrosny, Livenzel, and others, a few miles off, neither Vulcan nor Verst have received the least advantage from their proximity to a great industrial center. What the villages were fifty years ago? What they will doubtless be half a century hence, they are still. And accordingly to Elizei Recluse, a good half of the Vulcan population consists of people engaged in watching the frontier, custom house officers, gendarmes, revenue officers, and quarantine attendants. Omit the gendarmes and the revenue officers and a large population of agriculturalists, and you will have the population of Burst, consisting of a few hundred inhabitants. It is a street, this village, nothing but a wide street the uphill nature of which makes the ascent and descent laboriously enough along the road. It serves as a natural thoroughfare between a Wallachian and Transylvanian frontier. Through it pass the cattle and sheep and pigs, the dealers in fresh provisions, fruits, and cereals, the few travelers who venture through the defile instead of taking the Kulsivar and Maros Valley railways. Nature has assuredly generously endowed the district between the mountains of Bihar, Ritjeset, and Parang. Rich in the fertility of its soil, it is also rich in its underground wealth. There are salt mines at Thurda with an annual output of more than 20,000 tons. Mount Parajd, measuring 7 kilometers in circumference at its dome, is entirely formed of chloride of sodium. The mines of Tarasco yield lead, galena, mercury, and especially iron, the beds of which were worked in the 10th century. At Vedya Hunyad are mines whose products can be turned into steel of superior quality. There are coal mines easily worked in the upper strata of the Lacustrine valleys of the districts of Hatieg, Livenzel and Petrosny, a vast deposit estimated to contain 250 million tons. And finally there are gold mines at Alfinbanja, at Topinfalba, the region of the gold seekers, where thousands of primitive mills are working the sands of Verespater, the Transylvanian Pactolos, and exporting every year about 2 million francs worth of the precious metal. Here is a district that would seem to be greatly favored by nature, and yet its wealth is of very little profit to its population. If the more important centers, like Tarotsko, Petrosny, and Lonyai possess a few establishments suited to the comfortable conditions of modern industrial life, if they have regular buildings laid out with rule and line, and outhouses of shops, real workmen's towns in fact, if they have a certain number of houses with balconies and verandas, that is not the case at Vulcan or at Verst. Some sixty houses, irregularly clustered along the only street, capped with a fanciful roof, the ridge overhanging the mud wall, the front toward the garden an attic with a scarlet as a top story, a dilapidated barn as an annex, a stable all awry, covered with straw, here and there a well surmounted by a beam from which hangs a bucket, two or three ponds which run over during a storm, streams of which the tortuous ruts indicated the course. Such is the village of Verst, built on both sides of the road between the slanting slopes of a hill. But it is all very fresh and attractive. There are flowers at the doors and windows, curtains of verdure screening the walls, plants in disorder mingling with the old gold of the thatch, poplars, elms, beeches, pines, maples climbing above the houses as high as they can. Beyond are the zigzagging flanks of the hills and in the background the tops of the mountains, blue in the distance and mingling their blue with the sky. Neither German nor Hungarian is spoken at first, nor in any of this part of Transylvania. These people speak Romanian, even the gypsies do so of whom a few families are established rather than camped in the different villages of the country. These strangers adopt the language of the country as they adopt the religion. Those of Verst form a sort of little clan under the authority of the Voivode, with their huts, their baracas with pointing roofs, their legions of children, so different in their manners and regularity of their life from those of their congeners who wander about Europe. They even belong to the Greek church and conform to the religion of the Christians among whom they have settled. As religious head, Verst has a pope who resides at Vulcan and superintends the two villages, which are only half a mile apart. Civilization is like air or water. Wherever there is a passage, be it only a fissure, it will penetrate and modify the conditions of the country. But it must be admitted that no fissure has yet been found through this southern portion of the Carpathians. Vulcan, as LSA Recluse says, is the last post of civilization in the valley of the Wallachian Sill, and we need not be astonished at worst being one of the most backward villages on the country of Khosovar. And how can it be otherwise in these places where everyone is born and lives and dies without ever leaving them but perhaps you will say there is a schoolmaster and a judge at first yes without doubt but magister Herman was only able to teach what he knew that is to read a little to write a little to reckon a little his personal instruction did not go beyond that of science history geography literature he knew nothing beyond the popular songs and legends of the surrounding country in that respect his memory was richly stored He was strong in manners of romance, and the few scholars of the village gained great profit from his lessons. As to the judge, we may as well say something concerning the chief magistrate of Verst. The bureau, Master Colts, was a little man, of from 55 to 60 years old, a Romanian by birth, his hair close-cut and gray, his mustache still black, his eyes more gentle than fiery. Solidly built like a mountaineer, he wore the large felt hat on his head, the high belt with ornamental buckle around his waist, the sleeveless vest, and the short baggy breeches tucked into his high leather boots. As much mayor as judge for his function obliged him to intervene in the many disputes between neighbor and neighbor, he was chiefly occupied in administering his village with a great show of authority, and not without some benefit to his purse. In fact, all transactions, purchases, or sales were subject to a tax for his benefit, to say nothing of the tolls with which travelers for pleasure or trade filled his pocket. This lucrative position kept Master Colt's in easy circumstances. If most of the peasants of the country were ground down by the usury of the Israelitish moneylenders, who were the real proprietors of the soil, the Bureau had managed to escape. His goods were free from hypothecations, entabulations as they were called in his country, and he owed nothing. He would rather have lent than borrowed, and would certainly have done so without fleecing the poor people. He owned several pasturages, good grazing grounds for his flocks, lands under fair cultivation, although he would have nothing to do with the new methods. Vineyards, which flattered his vanity when he walked down the lines of stocks covered with the grapes he sold at a goodly profit, although he retained a fair portion for his private consumption. It need not be said that the house of Master Colts was the best in the village, at the angle of the terrace which crossed the long road as it ascended. A stone house, if you please, with its façade continued round onto the garden. Its door between the third and fourth windows, with the festoons of verdure bordering the gutter with their slender branchlets, with the two great beech trees spreading their boughs above the flowery thatch. Behind lay a fine orchard with its bed of vegetables like a chessboard and its rows of fruit trees skirting the slopes of the hill. Inside the house were fine, clean rooms, some to dine in, some to sleep in, with their painted furniture, tables, beds, benches and stools, their sideboards on which shone the pots and dishes. The beams of the ceiling from which hung vases decorated with ribbons and gaily-colored stuffs, the heavy coffers, covered with cloths and quilts, which served as chests and cupboards, the white walls, the highly-colored portraits of Romanian patriots, amongst others the popular hero of the 15th century, the Voivoda Veda Hungyed. It was a charming house, which would have been too large for a man by himself. But Master Colts was not alone. A widower for 12 years, he had a daughter, the lovely Mariotta who was much admired from verse to Vulcan and even beyond. She might have been called by one of those strange pagan names, Florica, Diana, danrichia which are much in honor in Wallachian families. But no, she was Muriota, that is to say, the little sheep. But she had grown this little sheep and was now a graceful girl of twenty, fair with brown eyes, a gentle look, charming features, and a pleasing figure. In truth, she could not look other than attractive, with her chemisette embroidered with red thread up to the collar, and on the wrists and on the shoulders her petticoat clasped by a belt with silver buckles, her catrinza or double atron with red and blue stripes knotted to her waist, her little boots of yellow leather, the light handkerchief on her head, her long hair floating behind her, the plate of which was ornamented with a ribbon or a metal clasp. Yes, a handsome girl was Mariota Colts, and, no harm to her, she was rich, that is for this village lost in the depth of the Carpathians. A good manager? Undoubtedly for she managed her father's house in intelligent fashion. Was she educated? Yes, at Magister Hermad School she had learned to read, to write, to cipher, and she ciphered, wrote, and read correctly. But she had not been pushed very far, and there were reasons for it. On the other hand, she knew about as much as was to be known of the Transylvanian traditions and sagas. She knew as much as her master. She knew the legend of the Leni Ko, the Rock of the Virgin, in which a rather fanciful princess escapes from the pursuit of the Tartars. The legend of the Dragon's Cave in the Valley of the King's Stairs. The legend of the Fortress of Diva, which was built in the Days of the Fairies. The legend of the Detunata, the Thunderclap, that famous basaltic mountain like a giant stone fiddle on which the Devil plays on stormy nights. The legend of Retiazat, with its summit cut down by a witch. The legend of the Valley of Thorda, which was cleft by the stroke of the sword of St. Ladislas. We must confess that Miryota believed in all these mythological fictions, but she was nonetheless a charming and amiable girl. A good many young men of the district found her so, even without considering that she was the only heiress of the byro, Master Colts, the first magistrate in the But there was no use in paying her attentions. Was she not already engaged to Nicholas Deck? A handsome type of Romanian was this Nicholas, or rather Nick Deck, 25 years of age, tall, strong in constitution, head well set in the shoulders, hair black, covered by the white callback, look clear and frank, bearing himself well under his vest of lambskin embroidered with needlework, well set on his slender legs, legs as of a deer, and an air of determination in his gait and gestures. He was a forester by trade, that is to say, almost as much as a soldier as a civilian. As he owned a little land, under cultivation in the environs of Verst, he was approved of by the father, and as he was a good-looking, well-made fellow, he was approved of by the daughter, with whom he was deeply in love. He would not allow anyone to attempt to rival him, nor to look at her too closely, and no one thought of doing so. The marriage of Nick Deck and Mariota Colts was to take place in a fortnight toward the middle of the approaching month. On that occasion the village would hold a general holiday. Master Colts would do the thing properly. He was no miser. If he liked getting money, he did not refuse to spend it when opportunity offered. When the ceremony was over, Nick Deck would take up his residence in the house which would be his when the buyer was gone, and when Mariota knew he was near her, Perhaps she would cease to fear, as she heard the creak of a door or the rattling of a window in the long winter nights, that some phantom escaped from her favorite legends was about to put in an appearance. To complete the list of the notables and worst, we must mention two more, and these not the least important, the schoolmaster and the doctor. Magister Herman was a big man in spectacles about 45 years old, having always between his lips the curved stem of his pipe and a porcelain bowl. His hair, thin and disordered on a faddish head, his face hairless, with a twitching in the left cheek. His great occupation was cutting the pens of his pupils, whom he forbade to use steel pens on principle, but how he lengthened the nibs of his old pointed pocket knife. With what precision and winking of his eye did he give the final touch by cutting the point? Above everything, good handwriting. To that, all his efforts were directed. It was to that that a schoolmaster, careful of his mission, should urge his pupils. Instruction was of secondary importance and we know what Magister Hermit taught and what the generations of boys and girls learnt on the benches of his school. And now for the turn of Dr. Patak. What, a doctor at worst, and yet the village still believed in the supernatural? Yes, but we might as well be clear as to the title born by Dr. Patak, as we had to be that regarding that born by Judge Colts. Patak was a little man with a prominent corporation, short and fat, aged about 45, ostensibly acting as medical advisor in Verst and his neighborhood. With his imperturbable self-confidence, his deafening loquacity, he inspired no less confidence than the shepherd Frick, and that is to say, little. He dealt in consultations and drugs, but so harmless were they that they were made no worse the petty ailments of his patients, who would have got well had they been left to themselves. People ate healthy enough in these parts. The air is of first quality. Epidemic maladies are there unknown. If people die, it is because they must, even in this privileged corner of Transylvania. As to Dr. Patak, yes, they called him doctor. He had had no education either in medicine or in pharmacy or in anything. He was merely an old quarantine attendant whose occupation consisted in looking after the travelers detained on the frontier for health purposes. Nothing more. That, it appeared, was enough for the easygoing people of Verst. It should be added, and there is nothing surprising in it, that Dr. Patak was a wide-awake fellow, as is usually the case with one who had to look after other people and he believed in none of the superstitions current in the Carpathian district, not even in those that were cherished in the village. He laughed at them, he made fun of them, and when he was told that no one had dared to approach the castle from time immemorial, he would say, You must not dare me to visit the old hovel. But as they did not dare him, as they carefully kept from daring him, Dr. Patak had never been there, and with the help of credulity, the castle of the Carpathians remained enveloped in impenetrable mystery. End of chapter 3